Stevenson University Online is a leader in forensic education for law enforcement, legal, and cyber investigations. If you are preparing for career advancement or career change, investigate our online master's programs in forensic science, CSI, forensic accounting, forensic investigations, and cybersecurity and digital forensics. New online sessions start every eight weeks. No application fee or GRE required. Visit stevenson.edu slash online. the podcast. I'm Charlotte. I'm Emily. We are two PhD students from the University of Queensland. We are two young researchers that want to highlight the importance of women in agriculture who are part of the STEM community. We're so proud to be part of this and we want to share with you the real life of some extraordinary women making a difference in their field. Let's break the stereotypes and show what we really are. Let's, Let's get, get started! started. another episode of Illuminata podcast. Today I have the pleasure to introduce Dr. Heather Smythe. She is a flavor and sensory scientist who has been working with premium food and beverage products for over 15 years. With a background in wine flavor chemistry, her expertise is in understanding consumer enjoyment of foods and beverages in terms of both sensory properties and composition. Associate Professor Smythe also specializes in researching how human physiology, such as saliva and chewing behavior, can impact sensory perception and therefore food choice. Thank you, Heather, for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Welcome. <laughs> what a treat. <laughs> so we're going to start with the personal question. We like to call it like this. Yeah. yeah. So could you please give us a uh, a bit of a quick biography. So where are you from? A bit of your childhood, your life path. Absolutely. So I was, uh, I was born in Sydney <laughs> uh, many, many years ago in the 70s. My mother, um, I was uh, the, the second child to my parents. She's Irish and my father is about fourth generation um, Australian, originally um, English um, descent. Uh, I have a, an older brother. I have a younger sister and a younger brother as well. So four of us growing up. Um, we moved to Adelaide uh, not too long after I was born. And, uh, and then a bit later moved to Darwin actually with my dad's work. He was an engineer. My mum was uh, very much a traditional stay at home mum. She didn't drive, didn't sign checks. Um, certainly with four kids, her hands were, were kept busy. Uh, three years in Darwin and then we moved back sort of, I guess, um, mid to late primary school for me. Uh, I went to um, some primary schools, obviously, in Adelaide then and uh, then on to high school, went to a, a public high school in Adelaide. And then in the last two years of high school, I moved to a, um, a small private um, Christian school, Pedair Christian College, uh, which is where my husband-to-be actually was also a student. And uh, although we'd known him for a very long time, we were family friends since, um, since we were quite young. Then went on to um, university. I did a, a Bachelor of Science at, at university and then that I uh, did honours, worked for a little bit, came back and did PhD. And um, 
after PhD moved to Queensland um, with my husband's work and have been here ever since. Hmm. Wow, that's amazing. Like you travel a lot, like you moved around a lot. I was living in Darwin actually. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, look, as a child, I think it's great. You just don't notice the heat. I mean, most of the time you just wear <laughs> underpants and, and no shoes and nothing else because it's hot. Um, it was, yeah, it was a really, it was a pretty amazing experience as a child. Um, I went to uh, a small Lutheran uh, primary school up there and there were some Indigenous kids that I was friends with at that point. And it certainly gave me um, a taste and an interest for um, Indigenous cultures and, an, and a bit of an understanding um, about the, I guess, the, the poverty that um, that is experienced by um, Indigenous Australians. I didn't really understand all of that at the time, but certainly later and, and you know, now in my career and the work that I do um, sort of in that area, certainly I can mark some of those experiences have, as being um, influential in the way that I think about things and the way that I think about people and, um, yeah, and caring for each other, I suppose. But no, Darwin was amazing, very hot. My mother hated it. She always <laughs> says it nearly killed her being an Irish woman. Um, you know, we had a place with an air conditioner and a swimming pool. We all swam like fish. Um, my mother couldn't swim. She couldn't swim. She hated crocodiles and blue, you know, blue, um, blue, what a uh, box jellyfish were the ones you had to watch out for in the ocean because everything could kill you as far as she was concerned. Um, we lived near the beach as well. So, um, yeah, that was a bit terrifying for her, but she just stayed inside in the air conditioning and, um, <laughs> and we just ran around wild, I think. <laughs> I feel her. Good days, exactly. So how was it like travelling? Yeah, look, I think having siblings, I mean, we did move around quite a lot. I had a lot of different um, schools, as I mentioned, that I went to. Having, I guess, a, a core group of siblings made life a lot easier in that I could just, you know, I had automatic friends. I had a little sister. I had an older brother that was supposed to look out mm -hmm. for me. And, um, and then the spoiled littlest brother of all, of course, that we all had to look out for. Um, I think because we were a very happy family, very close knit. I had a, a very privileged childhood. You know, my, my parents were wonderful um, people. Um, they weren't abusive. I got everything that I need in life. It was, you know, very safe, um, very safe environment for me and, and really enjoyed. We had a lot of animals growing up, huge number of animals. Um, Sorry yeah, for animals. From place to place. Well, well, uh, we had a dog. We had several cats. I was always bringing home some kind of injured animal that I needed to you know, take care of them. Um, I went to one of the, the high schools I went to was an agricultural high school. So there were orphan lambs that I would bring home on the bus um, and, uh, and bottle feed for, for weeks and months on end and goat kids. And um, we had yabbies in the pond that we had. We had a fairly big block and, um, and fish and, and uh, yeah, all sorts of things. Heaps of chickens, ducks at one stage. We used to have um, hatch baby chicks and whatnot and uh, from eggs. So very, very uh, agricultural experiences from a young age, that's for sure. Yeah. I knew where my food came, on, came from, let's put it that way. <laughs> oh, that's um, good. Yeah. yeah. Cool. It was good. Pretty charmed childhood, I have to say. It was pretty good. So did you have any dreams or aspirations when you were a child? Yeah, I, I was quite sure from a very young age that I was going to be a vet. That was it. I think that was probably a fairly common thing amongst yes. my friends that young girls think that's it. I love animals. I have a, a passion for taking care of things and I want to be a, a doctor of animals one day. Yes, I will be a vet. Um, so I was quite sure all the way up through high school as well, actually. And um, 
in my, as it turned out, in my city, in my hometown, Adelaide, they didn't have a vet science course. I would have to do, I would have to travel to Melbourne or to Perth to be able to do vet science. And my parents were, well, they weren't unsupportive of me, of me doing vet science, but they weren't really happy that I should move states um, at the age of 18, at a young age, to actually pursue that. Um, so the alternative option for me was to do a Bachelor of Science. Um, when I moved high schools in year 11, I... I really wasn't a very studious student, I would say. I hadn't, from the, the public um, um, high school that I'd gone to, I wasn't, I tended to float through. I got through um, exams reasonably well and, 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 you know, wrote my essays and whatnot at the last minute. I, I scraped through. I was probably a good B or C student without trying too hard. Um, when I changed schools um, to the, the private, um, to the private high school in year 11 and 12, I realised actually how, how hard school really was and how much better all of my um, peers were. Um, they were much better at studying, much better at the subjects than I certainly was. And um, I certainly had much more of a casual approach than many of them did. And, um, and realised at that time that uh, my chemistry skills were not where they needed to be to be able to do well enough uh, to get into high school. I was doing physics and English and, and maths and whatnot, but chemistry I was a bit lacking. And, and the teacher that I had at that time, um, look, I would say it's probably, probably some of the first, I mean, he's a really good guy. We've got a nice relationship now, but at the time I would say it's probably some of the first real uh, discrimination I felt. Um, I didn't really know it at the time as a, as a female, um, that he, he really aligned himself to the very bright students. They were often the boys were, were kind of the ones who were thought to be amazing at chemistry. And um, I remember him telling me I was just on the bus for the ride. Um, but the reality was without chemistry, I wasn't going to be able to, you know, if I didn't at least get through chemistry in year 12, I wouldn't be able to do a Bachelor of Science to then set me up to go and do, um, to go and do uh, vet science. It was a prerequisite subject. So my parents went and got me a tutor, a chemistry tutor. She was an amazing woman, uh, Mrs. Hops. Tracy Hops was her name. She was previously a chemistry um, teacher and was a stay-at-home mum and did some tutoring. And she was quite an inspirational woman to me. Uh, again, looking back at the time, I didn't really know it, but um, she was certainly yeah. forming um, the basic knowledge that I had in chemistry and Hearing her teach chemistry to me, it was like hearing a different language than what I could hear um, from my teacher, um, you know, Dr. Joyce, uh, he had a PhD, he was a very bright man at school. It was like, um, yeah, to, to describe it, it was like hearing another language. You know, I'd, I'd ask him to explain something to me and he'd just say the same thing again, using exactly the same words. And it was like, I, I don't understand. But when she would explain it, she had another way of communicating chemistry, which really connected with me. It really gave me a passion, great passion for chemistry as the building box of life and creation. It's, it really is, is fascinating. And, and chemistry is so logical. It's so different from biology. Um, in many ways, biology seems to be all these, all these names for things that don't necessarily have a systematic way of, of those names actually working in the first place. You just have to memorise a lot of stuff I found in biology early on anyway. It was, yeah. And I wasn't good at memorising. But if I could work something out logically from principles that I understood, then no problem. And that, that was chemistry for me. Um, so she, she developed that passion. I actually did reasonably well in year 12 in chemistry. I did better in art, actually. I got a better score for art, um, but chemistry was my next best subject. <laughs> and, then, oh. uh, and then moved on and was able to do 
uh, my Bachelor of Science after that. Okay. To be, to be in science, you need to be creative. So you do. It's you know, something... it's, I couldn't agree more. Yep. Yeah. So it's couldn't, something couldn't that is more. correlated with biology. Yeah, I, I, I think it is. And, and, you know, my creative side, I mean, at the time, no students were doing art as long with all the smart subjects, you know, the academic subjects. I, I was really the, in my art class, a completely different group of people. None of them did physics or maths or chemistry or, or English is what I was doing as well. I was, did, did enjoy English too. Um, but yeah, that I really, yeah, it was arts, very therapeutic, very creative, an amazing release. And, and often we see those two things as the logical, sensible, you know, um, academic side and then the artistic. But no, I think in the truth is in a science career, the two come together. My job is very creative. Um, it, it really is. It's also very language rich and relationship rich in what I do as well. Mm -hmm. And it's all of those things coming together with a basic you know, understanding of, of, of chemistry as well that, uh, that brings, I guess, the pieces together that make my job what mm -hmm. it is. We have a question about if you had a role model when you were growing, so your your tutor was shows that, like your role model or yeah, your was the chemistry other... I would say she was definitely a role model. I struggled to have role models. I would say there wasn't, um, you know, when, when all of the people around you are males who are, you know, when I, when I did do a Bachelor of Science, the subjects that I ended up doing, you know, the physics and the chemistry and, and whatnot, there's, there were precious few females. There were never female lecturers, that's for sure. Um, and so it was, you know, it's, it's hard to have a role model who isn't necessarily the same gender. I, I, I think that is difficult. I think I tried, certainly there were men that I admired and were role models for me as well um, in various in various different ways um, that I could relate to aspects of, of their character and, and what, they, what they did and what they were passionate about that I could relate to um, in certain ways. But I wouldn't say that I necessarily had huge role models. Tracy Hopps would have been definitely, and those, those two years that I worked with her was definitely very different to my mother in that she was a... Um, you know, academically minded um, working woman tutoring. Um, you know, my mother was was with the kids at home and would always assume that she couldn't know any of this clever stuff and wouldn't, you know, wouldn't never help me with my homework or anything like that. Um, you know, nor did my dad mind you either. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, very, very different type of woman. She was a very okay. different type of woman. Yeah. Mm. That's you the same. Mm. My question, um, yeah, yeah, continue, Charlotte, sorry. No, no, go, 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 no worries. <laughs> I was going to ask <laughs> Heather, if, if there was a moment, like a key moment in your career where you said, okay, I want to pursue a career in science. Well, not only, honestly, well, early on, as I said, I wanted to be a vet. So science was really a means to getting into to vet for me. I guess, I mean, there's another whole layer of complication. Once I did start my Bachelor of Science, I, um, the first year that I studied, I ended up with glandular fever and I was very sick. And so for my uh, first set of exams in the middle of the year, I was incredibly ill and I didn't study for anything. I couldn't study. I did turn up for my exams, but I was, I was very ill. My parents also, uh, I guess when I turned 18, my, my youngest brother, uh, who certainly, uh, I guess, cost my parents a lot of money, he went to 
probably the most expensive boys school in Adelaide and um, had had everything, you know, that one could possibly want when one's that age um, bought for him. And I guess that cost my family a lot and, and I needed to be able to make my own money. So I had to pay for my own uni books. I had to pay for my own union fees and um, my transport to university as well. So I had to work and Without, I worked at a swimming centre, I taught children how to swim, um, but that was kind of a priority for me. Even when I got very sick, I needed to be able to have money or I couldn't get my bus ticket to, to uni or, or anything else. So to study was kind of, I just slept otherwise outside of that, I just slept and, and those first set of exams I didn't do very well. And as a result, at the end of the year, while I passed everything, um, I even got some credits, but the reality was there were a couple of subjects that I couldn't continue with. And um, biology was one of those, or biological related subjects were some of those that I just passed, but I didn't get high enough to achieve for the next year. And I suppose it was around that time that the bubble of thinking I'd ever be a vet was blown. And I thought this isn't gonna work because I'm just not getting high enough scores. And the second year of university, I actually had um, in September, I had a burst appendix, which nearly killed me. And um, yeah, actually destroyed my ability to, to have uh, children, um, biological children of my own. And that was quite a significant thing that, that happened to me and certainly rocked my world in terms of what I thought I was going to do when I grew up was to be what I thought I'd eventually get married and be a mom. And then suddenly, wow, okay, well, maybe this career thing actually I have to do something much more serious with this now that I can't do vet science I I'm going to need to do something with this bachelor of science that I have um, because this is going to be my life now and um, it took me a very long time to recover from that um, I was in intensive care for for uh, many days and, and um, I was very sick, unable to then carry things and, and took a long time to recover. So I, I ended up with medical SUPS again in my second year for a set of exams that I had um, for, for second semester. I missed much of that semester. Nevertheless, once again, lucky Heather, with almost no study at all, I managed to, to pass everything and I even got some credits <laughs> in my second year. I didn't, I never had to do those medical SUPS either. And, uh, and actually all that had kind of pared down all these other subject options. So the one thing that I could continue with above all else was chemistry. <laughs> so in my last year of uh, study, I didn't get sick, thank God. Um, I did chemistry and I did uh, human physiology actually, which I also really enjoyed. And I actually did very well in, in both of those. Um, being able to study for exams is an amazing thing. And I ended up being offered honours in um, synthetic organic chemistry, which was fantastic. Um, mostly males, of course, there are only four, four girls who did, uh, did honours and the rest are 30 odd males or something rather in the chemistry department. No female academics at that time either. But yes, that's I ended up being able to do honours in synthetic organic chemistry, which which then I loved. I had a great year. And that sort of put me on the path to eventually discover this PhD that I did in flavour chemistry at the Wine Research Institute. That's awesome. Wow. Such a like you, you should you, you could write like a book about all your Oh my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> the so road to that, chemistry. Yeah, so now Heather, now you work as a sensory and flavor expert. How would you describe that job? It's very interesting. How does one end up doing that? 
Well, I mean, honestly, I didn't really know it was a job. Who would even think that a flavour scientist was a thing? It sounds too fanciful, like it's this magical, amazing, amazing career path. And I feel so absolutely blessed to have stumbled across it, to be perfectly honest with you. I am. when I did when I did my honours year, I did. Uh, I was making these compounds, which were kind of precursors of um, potential anti-cancer agents. Um, they weren't anti-cancer drugs that I was making, but I was sort of looking at um, uh, synthetic pathways towards that. And as something that, while I loved it and I was really good at it, I um, something that missed for me was being able to communicate that to people, you know, at a dinner party, for instance, or to help my friends understand what it was that I really did or why it was important in the world. I worked a little bit after that at my father's firm, at an engineering firm, mostly formatting terribly formatted Word document reports that these older engineer men had put together. But anyway, uh, that was when the PhD that I saw at the wine research being advertised in as, as flavour chemistry. And I thought, wow, not that I was a big drinker at the time, but to be able to combine the chemistry of wine and its flavour with the chemistry and understanding, um, I guess, the, the components of food that I loved and the analytical side of things and the synthetic side of things. I thought, what a fantastic picture. I'll always be able to talk about that at a, at a dinner party, won't I? <laughs> so anyway, I applied for this and, and I end up, ended up getting offered. And I think... Um, the fact that I'd done some um, human physiology also in my third year certainly mm-hmm. has contributed to helping me with that as well and understanding human function and, and senses and taste and olfaction and all of that. But really, so I, I think flavour chemistry and the job that I do really is a multidisciplinary uh, career path that I have. It's not just about chemistry. It's also about human physiology. It's also even a bit about psychology and you know, c- consumer mm-hmm. uh, market research and understanding why people make choices that they do, uh, which is quite fascinating. I work with lots of groups of people who... On a daily basis, uh, my sensory panel, there are a group of 12 people who taste the food products for me. I've trained them to be able to come up with words to describe the foods. Um, they, they use scales um, to rate the products objectively um, under controlled conditions. And then I use that data and lots of um, statistical tools to match with compositional data of the food that I've, I've um, explored. It might be compositional data or it could also be physical data. So, um, you know, rheology or tribal or viscosity or other types of measures of the food structure mm-hmm. um, that go into creating particular flavours or textures or sense, uh, different kinds of senses that we have in the food product. So um, that's really what a flavour chemist is, I suppose, pulling those things together, human perception and their experience, the consumer choices that are being made, and then also the food product, how that's being made, processes that might modulate that, ingredients that might change that as well, understanding that chemistry and um, uh, food physical properties and how those things relate to each other. But even where the food is, the provenance of the food as well. Absolutely. It is, it is incredibly important, especially for Australian food. Uh, you yeah. know, we, we make expensive food because we are sustainable. We try to take care of our environment. We've got very strict laws about these things. And the food that comes from the, the earth, the natural foods, mm-hmm. carry flavour characteristics which represent the region that they're grown. And understanding what those flavour characteristics are, what those unique nuances are of Australian products helps businesses value that, um, protect that and achieve a higher price amongst consumers. And um, that's why we love Coffin Bay oysters and Barossa Shiraz and, you know, beef from Queensland. And absolutely. (laughs) 
cheese from King Island dairy. And, you know, there's so many, so many different amazing foods that we produce, which largely are delicious because of where they're grown and how we, how we, uh, how we do agriculture here. Exactly. Yeah. And we're talking about like the Australian food and, and knowing where, where things come from and people associating the flavors to that, because for example, as an international student, I think the first thing that we come here is like, we wonder what is really Australian food like? We don't know. And um, it's largely- like avocado, large... av avocado, yeah. avocado toast, kangaroo meat. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, well, look, growing up, I thought Aussie food was, you know, in South Australia, we have this thing called a pie floater, which is just a meat pie, a really cheap, oh, it was not cheap, even, even an expensive pie, but a meat pie made with beef and the pastry. And then you have a bowl of pea soup and you throw the pie upside down in the soup. And this is quite in a famous Australian um, or South Australian food that you can get from a little um, a little wagon that's parked near the train station down on North Terrace somewhere or other. I thought that was what Australian food was, you know, that these classic uh, types of foods that obviously Westerners have brought to Australia and, um, and developed. There's a lot of amazing um, German influence and Italian and Greek influence in South Australia as well. Um, and Vietnamese influence actually in the foods that they eat, which you might think, well, it's kind of this conglomerate of different cultures that makes Australian food. Um, but I think the real opportunity that's been missed is in the amazing native foods um, that we have and indigenous exactly. foods that we have in Australia, yes. um, which have re really been ignored um, for 200 years because it's seen as, you know, uh, racist, really. It's, it's been seen as a lesser quality food because it's consumed by indigenous people, um, which is simply not the case at all. Obviously, we, we Hopefully, I certainly know better than that now. I hope most Australians think differently about that now. But, um, you know, it's not just eating witchetty grubs and weird things out and dug out of the backyard. There's some amazing produce um, and incredible genetic diversity, which causes a whole lot of amazing different types of flavour experiences, amazing nutritional um, components that can be obtained from Australian native foods. And, you know, they're used in medicines and all sorts of different things traditionally, which, um, you know, say Chinese culture know and, and respect, but we've, we've, we've got a lot to learn yet, really, um, to, to really yeah. show the respect that Indigenous foods deserve. Exactly. I think that will be very valuable to also teach the future generations because we just keep having this, I don't know, the, the lifestyle that we have sometimes is just to consumerism and we don't go back to what the nature has to offer. I feel like, well, me coming from South America, we also have a lot of knowledge like from the indigenous people that we value. But then when we go to the first world, it's more like globalized. All of that just is lost, unfortunately. Mm. Yeah, I think so too. Look, I think in Australia, we we ought to value food much more than we really do. I think, yeah, we do, we do see it as a, you know, what uh, those fast movie consumer goods, FMGCs, is that it? <laughs> FMCGs, that's it. Um, we don't, we don't value the effort that farmers have put into producing them, that the land has sacrificed to be able to, to produce this beautiful um, piece of meat or, or beautiful um, loaf of bread or, or whatever it is that's being produced from these raw ingredients from the land. I think your generation will be the one to know, you know, how much at the, 
we have abused the land that we do grow things on and, um, and, and how little respect that we have had for it um, in the past. Consumers need to value food. They need to, to respect that they should be able to pay more for it, that farmers, that being a farmer in Australia should be a, a sustainable livelihood and that we should value that and, and pay good, good money for a punnet of strawberries or for a mango or for a lettuce. Um, it's very challenging environment to grow it in and to grow it sustainably as well is also, is also quite a challenge. Um, we're willing to pay ridiculous money on technology that more often than not doesn't last and, and lets you down and doesn't work properly. But for food, we just, we expect it should be the cheapest possible, you know, price yeah. that we can pay and that, that much of our income doesn't, you know, it doesn't go towards that. Certainly my attitudes about food have changed over the years. I would much rather pay a good price, a, a top price for some good quality food um, than, than other things that no, we need to is, change as priorities. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, and we need to change the mentality of people. Mm, I agree. Because, so we need to to teach them, to educate them, because they don't they don't care about the provenance. And it's, I think it's important to know the pro, the provenance because the food it go, goes in our body. Absolutely. And, and we are the reflection of what we eat. Absolutely. And we food, are. it's our medicine. Like I mean, so we need to be very careful what we're eating. Absolutely. And people doesn't know about that and. That's why we have so many diseases, problems, and not, like so many things because we we're not caring about what we eat. We're not, and we're wasting so much of it as well. Yes, and people are continuing like saying, "Oh, we need to produce more food, more food." We already produce a lot of food, and we produce more than we need. We yeah. throw most forty percent of it away. Yeah, yeah, and half of the world is starving. Exactly. Let's keep going with the question. I'm just curious about how does a regular day look like for you? A regular day? Uh, well, yes. other than Zoom meetings, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, look, it, it would be going in, working with my panel, yeah, leading a panel session. You know, at the moment we're doing some cream cheese. We're also doing some um, uh, protein burgers at the moment, um, some wine. Um, there's, a, there's a range of different products we've got, we've got on the go at the moment and also some coffee as well we're doing um, in the next little while and some more beef is coming up. But a session would be working with my trained panel, coming up with words to describe a set of products that are, that are, um, that are a, in a study that we're interested in. Um, developing words um, to describe those. I do a lot of tastings, a lot of tastings. I taste Can we come? Can we come one day and yes, tasting? I do pay my train panelists as well. Oh, please, some wine. I'd be very happy to try exactly. some wine. Um, but they work, they work quite hard, actually. They do work quite hard. Sometimes they have to have um, large numbers of samples, which aren't always comfortable. And if it's just cream cheese with no nothing else, there's not cream cheese on toast with avocado or anything like that. It's just purely cream yeah. cheese hunks. Um, that is, a, it's a fairly big ask for, for someone to sit down and do two hours of tasting those, those products wow. is, is a bit full on. Um, I would collect that data, analyse that data. Um, I have a number of um, technical staff and students, obviously, and postdocs. So um, I then work with those guys to, to, to help them. They're the ones who deliver the projects. They're all working on something different. And I'd be talking through um, any technical challenges that they have or giving them any direction as that may be. Personally, I don't do as much um, hands-on in the chemistry lab as I once did. I think uh, we're moving to some new facilities um, sort of in the middle of the year. And I think that will probably change. I'll probably get my hand. We've got some beautiful new equipment coming. So we'll another uh, GCMS olfactometer and whatnot that I'm, I'm looking forward to getting back into some um, hardcore flavour chemistry. 
on that instrument. And then a lot of what I do actually revolves around talking to clients. A big part of my job um, at, at the level that I am is winning new work. A week doesn't go by where I haven't spoken to two or three clients, either about an existing project or about a future project that they want to do. Um, and, uh, and negotiating with them and understanding what their needs are and matching that up to the science that my team can deliver or my colleagues might need to collaborate and help deliver as well. So a lot of that type of um, contract administration and whatnot I get in, involved with and we do have people at UQ to support us in that. Um, but yeah, making sure that all those types of documents are drawn up properly, managing budgets and, and helping, um, helping my staff know what what budget they need to use to buy consumables and keep the labs ticking along as they need to. Um, mm-hmm. I'd say that's, you know, that's, that's largely my, my job at the moment in the, in the phase of life that I'm in. It's the forties. It's when uh, <laughs> now it's my focus is more on making sure I've got work for the team rather than necessarily um, for me personally to be doing in the lab. Mm. What's the most interesting project that you've worked on? I mean, in terms of like product development, do you have a, a favorite, a, a particular Gee. one that you remember? <laughs> oh, look, I mean, there have been some amazing experiences um, that I've had. The seafood work that I've done has always gone down as being a bit of a treasure for me, I'll be honest. I did a, I developed a flavor wheel for the Air Peninsula region. Uh, they have some of the most amazing seafood in the world, which is highly prized in overseas markets. Some of their, some of the seafood um, grown in that region, you know, Australian consumers would never have ever touched. You know, it goes straight to Hong Kong and Singapore and where people are, are willing to value, you know, rock lobster and um, even mussels and blue mussels and oysters and tuna uh, and kingfish. And it was just incredible, that project. We got to taste some of the most... Um, freshest, most high quality, pristine seafood in the world, um, day after day after day for an entire year. Wow. It was amazing. Uh, the panel thoroughly enjoyed it. And it was really about coming up with a language to describe what the seafood from that region, um, I guess, expressed in terms of, of the flavour qualities and and to compare how that was different from other regions and um, to sort of identify what was unique about that region um, in terms of the flavour and, and sensory and, and odours and, and tastes of those seafood mm-hmm. products. Amazing people that I got to work with down there, Lester Marshall from Coffin Bay Oyster Farm was such an inspirational um, client to work with and so passionate about, about the region and, and taught me so much. I remember him taking me out. We, we had a, um, a workshop in Port Lincoln. He took me out to Coffin Bay um, on, his, on his little uh, oyster barge or whatever, whatever it calls his boat um, where they go and collect some of the nets. And it was just him, me and my technician, John Mays, was a great guy to work with. And um, he took me to a spot where he had a new thing going at the local pub where you could buy for $100 um, an ancient oyster to eat. And so he had these 15 to 20-year-old oysters that he was specially curating here. Normally when you have an oyster, it would only be 18 months old, would sort of be in the average age of an oyster and that's sort of you know um, not bigger than the palm of your hand um, but these oysters these were some mothers of all oysters like wow. two hands and, and a bit to carry them and uh, the challenge was at the pub that you could pay a hundred dollars and but you had to eat the whole oyster instead of one <laughs> one mouthful because people often will swallow an oyster or chew it and swallow it Anyway, he pulled one up for me and, and prepared it. It's like, oh, here you go, Heather. It's like, oh, my gosh, this, this poor creature has been growing for 17 years. 
and now I, I, you've killed it and I have to eat it. <laughs> and it was, uh, anyway, it was, it was, a, that was certainly a memorable experience. I gagged a few times. We didn't get that one on camera, thankfully, or that would have haunted me <laughs> to this day. But I did record my colleague eating his. <laughs> he, did, he did a much better job than I did. But um, to be out there in Coffin Bay, in the elements, this pure, beautiful ocean, um, there are sea urchins and um, scallops just on the ground, you know, which is only you hop out in a sort of thigh deep water, you can reach down, pick them up, scoop, scoop and, and eat it. And it just, the flavour, oh, the purity, the beauty of the region, it's just, just all expressed in these beautiful little, um, beautiful little oysters, just incredible, incredible products. That was, that was a good project. Wow. <laughs> that was oh, yes. story. oh, look, it's been, it, it's been great. I mean, the tropical fruit work that I've done as well, some of the exotic tropicals have just been amazing. Um, I've learned a lot about food. Uh, I've learned a lot about people. I've learned a lot about how hard it is to produce good food in this country. And, and I tell you what, hats off respect to people who to grow and produce food um, and and stuff that, that's delicious and, and tastes good and is good for you. There's there's no alternative really. We we we've got so much rubbish in the shops that my kids eat, unfortunately. But there's nothing nothing replaces amazing food that's grown true. by by people who really know what they're doing and struggle yes. with storms and droughts and goodness knows what um, and diseases that come through and whatnot. It's it's relentless. Um, Making consumer choices like that actually is for the benefit of, yeah. of the farmers and benefit for um, growers of these products, um, yeah. yeah, rather than large multinational corporations. Yes, it, we do, totally. We, we have yeah. to. Mm-hmm. And eat local food. I've been getting those, um, I don't know about you, but those farm boxes that you can get at home, you can have them delivered. I've tried a few different brands. The last one I got was a Scenic Rim box, actually, and you've got from the Scenic Rim, which is food right from our doorstep, you know. Oh, um, wow. Yeah, so that's that's a really good one to get. And we also got some, you know, um, camel's milk um, soap in it as well and, and also some yogurts and cheeses and, and eggs and whatnot. So right to the doorstep. That's awesome. Thank you. That was so interesting. <laughs> Sorry, Charlotte. I know you've only got a few minutes left, so I won't no, like, no, like no, rabbit no, no, on no, about no something else. So one question is, why for you is important to highlight women in agriculture? Thinking back, you know, 20, 25 years, I didn't even know this was a career option for me, largely because I thought men did agriculture and men did the academic, um, I guess, uh, science types of things or engineering types of things. They were the role models that I had. And it was quite um, a challenge for me personally, mentally, to even accept that that could be something that I could pursue and be successful at. Um, I would love to know that my girls now have um, role models in all types of careers like agriculture. Um, I think there are fascinating and amazing careers that can be had in agriculture and in food and in in certainly the science that we pursue um, that we wouldn't, you know, they're harder to define than say, you know, being an engineer or being a doctor, you know, you go and do, you can see in the future what that kind of career would be like. But in agriculture, it's so diverse. There isn't one yeah. straight line to get there. But the the enjoyment of a career path there is just absolutely immense. So I think highlighting women really allows young younger girls to see that there are options for them and that that might be a career path that they could take and that they can see women who've gone before them who've been successful and um, they can 
you know, use those as role models that perhaps I didn't necessarily have. Yeah, so we absolutely What, what do you think, like... Oh, yes, completely. But for you, like, how, how can we increase the number of females to go, to go in the, like, to direct them in the agricultural career? Look, I know that the statistics show that there isn't a shortage of women going into, say, um, career paths that are engineering focused or science focused. The problem is getting them through the, to the, you know, to the higher levels is, is really where the challenge is. They, it's kind of equal yeah. early on. In fact, maybe even more women in, in certain types of STEM subjects, but then they drop away very quickly. Um, I think it's a really, that's a really complicated, involved question. There's, there's many different ways of looking at it. But from my personally, from, from all the different, different things that we could talk about here, you know, um, the fact that, that only women have maternity leave, not men, et cetera, et cetera. Um, the, the fact that women's bodies still produce the babies and that there still is a cultural expectation and pressure put on a woman to take a career break um, for however long to, to, to take care of the child. And then there's, it's challenging for her to go back um, you know, mentally and practically, um, but also in terms of the way that people treat her and respect her when she tries to get back in the workplace and, and move forward. Um, we still are limited by the fact that many of our leaders, um, certainly in my group, that's the case. They're, they're, they're older white males. And, um, you know, there, there are few few women um, in those types of roles who can relate to the experiences of a, of a woman coming through like myself or even someone younger and to allow better options, more flexible options and, and actually appreciate what she has to contribute, which is unique to what the other blokes have to contribute. That, you know, he, my, my, my leader can't, my, my, certainly my director can't, um, can't relate to my experiences. And that's just the simple fact of life. He can't relate. He can better relate to my male peers. And he, he can't always see what it is that I've got to offer, which is valuable and different. I, I, you know, I think one of the things I think will really make things change um, for women in the future in, in these types of career paths is that men come to terms with um, and I guess have more opportunity and more social pressure um, and expectation for them to participate in domestic life in a way that they haven't had to for so long. I'm sure you've read, maybe you haven't, Annabelle Crabbe's book, um, The Wife Drought. <laughs> I think that it, it, that's very eloquently describes a number of things. So much have changed for women over the last 50 years in terms of what we can do and what doors can be opened, but nothing's changed for men. Very rarely do you have a man to be the one to stay at home and do the child rearing. Very rare is it that a, that a man is the one responsible for all of the cooking, all of the cleaning, all of the laundry, all of the purchasing of, of domestic supplies, all of the organising of the childcare and the schooling and the, the excursions and the, the children's uniforms and the birthday presents and the Christmas presents and staying in touch with in-laws and outlaws and, and extended family and organising family holidays and planning ahead for pets and for etc etc very very rarely do we have men getting involved in those aspects of life that women we're just expected to, to be able to carry that and a full career at the same time and somehow balance this women women are good at balancing these things men are not and I think when more men get it that they need to participate in all of that domestic you know part of their life yeah. um, that they expect a woman to take care of for them the more men we have that are like that the more great men that we have like that 
then the more women will be able to, to achieve their full potential as well in terms, of, in terms of their lives and in terms of their careers and in terms of pursuing leadership roles in, in science yeah. and in engineering mm -hmm. and, and those types of careers. So I think men need to change is my, is, my, is my bottom line, I suppose, not women. Yes, well said, Heather. I completely agree with that. And the thing that is happening at the moment is also women kind of, um, I don't know, I don't know if they, they call it the leaky pipe, but it's like a lot of women starting, you know, a science degree. And, but then at the top of the ladder, then there are a few and few women having leadership roles so how do you think do you have any suggestion on what can we do better to support uh, women at the top of the academic ladder or leadership role in, in some ways I think it's just going to be time um, I do feel I will be honest with you I know that um, there's not a great deal of women at, at sort of in, in their 40s um, what am I going to do next etc etc what are the next 20 years hold for me but I do feel some pressure um, as, as one of few to have to make sure I step up and, and break new ground um, or continue, I'm hardly a groundbreaker that like the women in the 60s and 70s did that, but I'm burning my bra or whatever. However, I do need to, to take some responsibility there, I feel, and, um, and push the boundary a little bit further and a little bit further so that in the next 20 years, a woman at my my uh, level of experience and my age, it'll be easier for her to climb the same mountain that I've already tracked out for her. Um, I, I do think that that we need to just just keep pushing forward. I think keep being gentle as well um, and and kind to to our male colleagues who who many of them are, are incredibly incredibly sexist racist incredibly a whole number of things I've, I often find and seem to get away with it but to be gentle and kind with those people and try and um, and influence them by your example um, so that they can change their mindsets some of them we just need to wait to, to finish their careers and retire and move on <laughs> um, but yeah certainly I do, I do feel that pressure and expectation to keep moving and I, I hope I'm you know, God willing, if my health keeps up and, um, and nothing drastically changes in my life, um, I, I hope to continue to be able to do that. Excellent. Thanks, Heather. Thank did, you. That, did that answer your question? <clears throat> I'm sorry. Yeah. Thank you. So I like last question that I like to, to ask. Yeah. What advice would you give to your younger self? Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Don't listen to what people tell me I can't do. Definitely. That's a good one. That's a good one. Yeah. yeah. Even that that inner voice sometimes um, that when you realise that wasn't ever my voice that that was what has been said to me and I'm just somehow repeating it. You know, there's something else. I mean, I've been learning a little bit about lately. I heard an interesting podcast. Um, you know, I I'm sometimes told by my uh, but my male peers and and even uh, um, those senior to me. Um, to be careful about my emotions and not to get too emotional about this or that. I don't necessarily think I'm a particularly more emotional than any other human being, male or female. Um, but I think there's a, a big misunderstanding amongst much of the population, particularly with males, that, that there's like this continuum. There's, there's logic on one side and there's emotion on the other. And you're either logical or you're emotional, but you can't be both. I think at this point in my life, I'm realizing that I can be both highly emotional about something and feel strongly and passionately about it, but also be equally logical and practical and pragmatic at exactly the same time. Mm. 
And I think for women, don't listen when someone tells you you're being too emotional about this, therefore not logical. The reality is I think you can use um, your passion and your emotion and your ability to have empathy and to relate to people and to situations in a very powerful way to make logical and practical and sensible decisions that benefit the greater that the greater good rather than cutting out and isolating any feeling or emotion or connection that you might have with, with people or individuals about a situation. I think emotions are powerful. Harness them. Don't neglect them. Um, you know, obviously when you're just very distressed and, uh, and can't think about anything else, that, that's a different state of mind. That's not, not emotional in, 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 my, in my book. That might be hysterical. But emotion and, and logic can, can go hand in hand and use it powerfully. Excellent advice. Thanks, Heather. Okay. That's awesome. Oh, it's really good talking to you both too. Thank you for joining us in this episode of the Illuminata podcast, where we highlight the story of STEM women in agriculture. Stay tuned for the next episode. Bank of Clark County is making it easy to give to local charities. We're featuring a different one at each of our Bank of Clark County locations. To find out how you can support their good work, visit our website at www.bankofclark.bank or follow us on our social media channels and the hashtag GiveWithBOCC. Happy Holidays from all of us at Bank of Clark County. Member FDIC.